Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father to rule. And he left behind a world and the stuff that he wants done inside of it. And he left behind a church and the stuff that he wants done inside of it. And what you believe about Jesus actually says a lot about what you would expect from the stuff that he left behind. So you don't have to be a Christian to look around the world and realize that this place isn't what it should be. You might not even have to use the word sin to explain it. But even the atheist would admit that we live in a world that has fallen apart right now. It's actually easier for them. They can just blame global warming or whatever and move on. You've got to deal with the fact that your God has promised that he would bring forth justice to the nations. Look around. What you believe about Jesus has a lot to do with where you expect to find it. Because I see a government that can't even get along with itself, let alone the strife and calamity in the rest of the world. I see that one of the most fundamental things that we teach our children is that life isn't fair. And they should get used to that fact early on because there is no justice. So what do we say about the Jesus who lets the world look like this? All the things wrong are easier to explain if there's not a God, or at least a God who promises to love us and take care of us. Just blame global warming, move on. Where is Jesus though, when this stuff needs to get fixed? Is he just waiting for you? to help get it done? Like, can it be overcome by your faith? If you just really pray hard enough, can you pray away the evil? If we elect the right Christian people, can we fix the problems? If we share the good news enough, can we undo everything that's busted up? Some might here actually come to church looking for the Jesus who established it before he ascended into heaven, but they're gonna find a room full of sinners and he keeps saying that he will take us by the hand and keep us. That he will give us a covenant to lighten all nations and open eyes that are blind. But congregations are closing at a record rate right now. So will we grow faint? Can we just really try hard enough and then clean it up? Find the right guy to stand up here and say the right words to make you feel better about what's going on, to give you the optimism that you need to never be discouraged when things don't go how we imagine, the excuses for God who deep down we're afraid didn't do his job right in the first place or we wouldn't need all of the excuses and false optimism in the first place. Because the last time I checked, the mortality rate for Christians rests right around the same 100% that it does for the rest of the world. So what do we got to do to see the God hold our hand? like that footprint poem that I can't actually find in the Bible. I mean, we try to do the things that he left for us. At least we're good at pretty much faking it, kind of. You know, follow his law, study his word. I mean, how's that going? I mean, I know who's never in Bible study. I know who doesn't watch online. It actually shows me who's watching. Just careful next time you tell me. How much do you really devote yourselves to good works? Because I'm pretty sure that's a Bible verse. 
can you name me five things that you talk about less than the catechism at dinner? Less. I got to be honest with you. What do you actually expect from God? Would you expect him to help you? I mean, really, do we deserve it? Can you tell me with a straight face that you have earned his help? If you really can, spend some time in the Ten Commandments and the meanings given in that catechism that we don't talk about at the table like we're supposed to. Scripture tells us that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. And what you think about Jesus has a lot to do with what you expect from him and the stuff that he's left behind, like this place. Whether or not we want to admit it, we are the faintly burning wick. We are worn down just trying to endure. We are worn down by a lack in ourselves. We are the bruised reed, hurting from sin and external pressure. So do you believe in a Jesus who only helps those who help themselves, who only help those who really pledge themselves to him, who only help those who really give him their hearts? Because if you do, how much should you really expect from him? After all of the excuses that he sees right through, and all the lies that we tell ourselves, most of the problems that we have, we have made for ourselves. And most of the damage that we have done, we have done to the people that we claim to love the most. See, it's not enough to say you believe in Jesus. The Mormons say that, it's just they don't think he's God. And that's not Christianity. What you believe about Jesus matters. That's why we have creeds. If you only believe in the Jesus who helps the good boys and girls get better, if you only believe in the Jesus who helps the people who start helping themselves, this place is going to seem kind of foolish, and I don't know that I'd want to come here neither. But we believe in a Jesus who saves sinners, even from themselves. We are the bruised reed, the faintly burning wick, and he has not come to add to that problem, but to shield us from it. And it's not because it's fair. It's not because we're special and we should be treated better than everyone else around us. It's because God loves sinners, even us. God is merciful to sinners, even us. That is why he has come into this world, not just to remind us that we're supposed to behave and be kind and love one another and that all the problems that we think we have aren't actually problems, even though the Bible calls them that. It's to die on the cross to save us for all, not some, but all. It's to rise from the dead, free from the bonds of death to ascend into heaven, to rule from on high. But before he does any of that, he climbs down into the waters of the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And he sends out a church to baptize you. Except the heavens didn't open for most of ours. Never seen a dove in here. And so most of ours seem like a lot less than the ones that we read about. So we argue about baptism a lot inside of Christianity because deep down underneath all of the fights that we have about whether or not we should baptize babies, and we should, and whether or not it saves, it does. What you think about Jesus says a lot about what you would expect from the stuff that he leaves behind, like baptism. See, if you expect Jesus to only help the smart or the kind or those who really, really pray hard enough, why would he be in that Jordan River with all those sinners? John is right. You should be baptizing me, not the other way around. Why would you baptize the helpless, like babies? 
Every argument against baptizing babies, every argument against baptism being anything that God would do for you, it sort of centers around the fact that we look and act as bruised and broken coming out of the waters as we do going in. And we don't figure Jesus would slum it with us forever. So John tries to stop him. Jesus, creator of the universe, God Almighty, let me tell you how to do your job because you're screwing it up again. This is for sinners. This is for repentance. And you don't need those things. And so the servant, Christ, enters the waters beneath John anyway. He climbs down through the mud into the sinful waters, the leftovers from every sinner who had gone through that baptism before by John. And he splashes around inside of it for you and for me and for them and for John and for all to bear the sin inside of all of us. And that is the service that God would work for us in his baptism. Because if you want to talk about baptism, you actually do have to talk about Jesus first. The two are connected. He stepped into those waters for a reason. He says, thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Not just righteousness for him, not just righteousness for the law, but for all. All righteousness for all people. He didn't need to do anything. He was fine. It's we who needed it. For every faintly burning wick, every bruised and broken sinner, every evil person who doesn't deserve it or could pledge it just fine but didn't carry it forward afterward, Jesus waded into waters of our sin to pull us out of them. And that's not about what's fair. But it's never been about what's fair. It's not about what we deserve. It's never been about what we deserve. It's about whether or not God is merciful to sinners. Because if he's merciful to sinners on the cross, he will be merciful to them in the water. That's where he stands. And if he is merciful to them in the water, well, that's the kind of God who dies for all on the cross. He shelters the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick. He brings forth justice because sin does still need to be punished. So he becomes the one who would bear it. Do you think that Jesus is here to die for your sin or to tell you to be happy, which is what you already wanted, and remind you to try your best, which if that was good enough, why would he have to die on the cross after all? If you think Jesus is only here to tell you to be happy, ignore all the stuff that he tells you is sin. Ignore the cross. Ignore the resurrection. Ignore the baptism. Ignore the whole Bible. Just do whatever you want anyway. You can call it Jesus if you want to, but what you believe about Jesus has a lot to do with what you believe about the stuff that he left behind, like his word. And that word tells us that he has come to fulfill all righteousness, not just for himself, but for all. He will not grow faint or discouraged where we do. He measures justice, not by a lack of evil or things gone wrong in this world, not by a world where everyone gets what they deserve either, but by a punishment dealt that he would bear for you, that he would bleed and die, and you would be called holy, and you would be called worthy of love, because God who is perfect died for we who are not, that God who is dead has made us alive. Christ died and rose for us. And that cross does what it says. Your sins are forgiven you, every last one. And so when he promises a baptism, that gives you what he says it will too. He joins you in those waters. Baptism is unity with God. You go in the waters that Jesus is in. And so you are united with him in his death and most certainly in his resurrection. Jesus joins us in the waters to carry us out of them. And he gives us that which we need. Everything promised. Forgiveness of sins. Life and salvation. Those waters matter. Because that is what makes us the church. Jesus given to sinners. Because a church isn't just a whole bunch of people who get together on weekends and complain about the rest of the world. And talk about how we can get better at doing what we're already doing. And then hide what we shouldn't have been. 
because I don't want to be a part of that church either. And those congregations should close because that's a lie. Church is Jesus for sinners, and that's not measured in numbers, but in faithfulness. God has promised to handle the rest. He has so far. And so he will continue to do so, while the coastlands even want nothing to do with him until that last day that they finally do. He gives the gospel to sinners, to bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks daily. And that is baptism, the gospel for you, that you would not measure it in how you feel at any given moment, because the wick is barely burning. That he would not measure it in how strong you stand because the bruised reed is about to tip. But he measures it by his death and resurrection that he has joined you to in the waters of your baptism. He falls into the pit so that where we don't fit the description of holiness, God would give us a new identity. We are children of God now. Not by our works, but by his works. He has done these things for you. And there he takes you by the hand. And there he pulls you up out of the muck and the mire and names you his child. And there he names you a heir to eternal life. And there he saves sinners. He gives us a baptism to do it. This is how God saves sinners, through baptism. It's not baptism or Jesus. It's Jesus through baptism. The Jesus who saves sinners gives us a baptism to do it. You are baptized. You are a child of God. And there is your judgment right there in those waters. You are judged holy because he was judged guilty. This is freedom to prisoners because sinners get pardoned in Jesus. Not that you'll be immune from suffering, but that God would join you in it. Not that nothing bad will ever happen when you sin, but that it would happen to Jesus. Not that you will just shine, shine, shine your own little light. It's that his light would be extinguished for you, that he would rise from the dead some three days later. That is Christian endurance. It's not about us. It's about him. That is Christian endurance, not our light and our life, but his darkness and death for you. You are baptized into that, and you will be brought through the darkness and to the life again. You can know it. God has promised it. He has not lied yet. You are baptized, and maybe the heavens didn't open, and maybe there wasn't a bird, but there was still a voice that spoke from on high. You are God's beloved child with whom he is well pleased. It was spoken to you by God through your pastor, won for you by your God upon a cross, so that you would know who you are when the world would speak different, when you can't look at yourself in the mirror, when you hate everything that you feel and you're afraid the wick will go out, when you hate everything that has been done to you and you're afraid the bruised reed's about to break. You can know who you are. You are baptized into Christ, and you will live just like he does. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds into life everlasting. Amen.